You're listening to the PR Wind Down Podcast, the show for public relations professionals who are ready to see real change in the PR industry. We are your hosts, April Margulies and Laura Schooler. Let's get ready to wind down. All right, Laura. Yes, April. Do you want to get into the what not to do from PR pros who know? I definitely do. I thought of an interesting topic. What not to do when a client surprise dumps on the PR strategy slash execution on a regular call without warning. Like, you know, you're on your weekly or bi-weekly call and you've set the agenda and you start getting into what you guys have been doing and what you wanna do and everything's fine. And all of a sudden the client rips into you out of nowhere, you've no warning, and there you are in front of your whole team. Oh, yeah. Yes, it happens to all of us. It's happened to everyone. So why the client didn't bring that up to you before on a phone call or an email, I'm not quite sure, but I suppose they're busy and they're deciding, well, here we are. So I'm going to say everything I never said to my mother or something when I was growing up. So what not to do, or maybe what to do when that happens? I mean, the obvious what not to do is, you know, don't yell back or call them bad names, but that's the, we don't need to discuss that, but that's obvious. So more about the what to do, I think is to remember that you are the expert, you are the counsel, and perhaps what the client is bringing to you as something that they thought you did wrong or that you haven't done enough of or that they didn't like how it turned out, usually it's one of those things. In my mind, it's most often like you haven't gotten them enough, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. That's usually the client's biggest complaint. Like, not enough media coverage, or you told me you were going to get me an interview with so-and-so and and it hasn't happened, et cetera. So you have to remember who you are as the counselor to them, the expert in PR first and foremost, because then you will have the ground on which to stand and speak intelligently and confidently. You don't want to sort of take the blame You know, as we talk about a media training, you get a negative question from a reporter, don't repeat the negative language because then all of a sudden you're going to be quoted negatively. Same thing with talking with a client, don't repeat their negative language and stop yourself and you might have to take a minute and remember why those things that they wanted to have done didn't happen or haven't happened yet or what went off track and say, hey, Stan, remember what we told you the last time we talked, like this is going to take longer than just a week or two. Or remember we told you that we were going to hold off on that strategy until after the holidays because we didn't think that it was going to be time well spent. Or, you know, you're right. We've tried that. It's not working well. We want to give it a couple of more days of effort and then we may have to change our strategy. And we're thinking about, strategy B and C, go back to the well on what you know about PR and bring that to them. And either it will answer their question and they won't really have something else to say, or maybe you'll start an open dialogue that will help them to understand more. And perhaps, and often this will happen, you will get a nugget or two or three of information that you didn't even know before that's very helpful to help you get what they need. Because they don't know, like, I'm sorry, I have, I've been busy. We hired, you know, three top people yesterday. And you say, well, wait a second. You hired three top people yesterday. Who are they? Like, this will help us get what you want. You know, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you keep that positive, but also, you know, open-mindedness about the situation, you'll be less likely to feel attacked and you'll be more likely to get the things that you need to be successful. Yeah, I agree. So in some don't get emotional or angry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
don't repeat back the negative language, but I would say do repeat back what they're saying in a more positively mm-hmm. or more impersonally. Mm-hmm. So you let them know that you're hearing them. I think that always calms mm-hmm. down clients, especially if it comes out of the blue. Mm-hmm. So what I hear you saying is you're concerned that da 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 da. I'm sorry, you're feeling that way. We want to address it, you know, and there's a way of handling it from there and which I've had happen. So if it's a situation, I had this happen recently, a startup that really is best suited for trade media at this point because of their brand awareness, didn't want any trade media. And so I said, you know, I understand if there's not any way for you to go back to the plate and argue internally that this is a good tactic. Could we, for example, focus on podcasts that are specific to the industry until we get some groundwork laid to go after the TechCrunches, the Forbes, all these bigger publications you want. So we're trying to build a pyramid with no base, right? Mm -hmm. To get to the top. And unfortunately, I don't know how to do that unless we have something. So, you know, he said, yeah, there was a way around that. But it's still, I explained to him, you're kind of tying our hands by doing this. So I just want to let you know, it's going to be very difficult, but I hear you. I respect that. I don't think it's a great idea, but we can do that, you know? And so sometimes that's also the thing where don't have the internal dynamics or the politics are not conducive to what you need to get done. There's also nothing you can do about that. So you can't really get angry either because it's, it is what it is, right? It's you can not about tell them, you. You can, it's not about you. You can give them the rationale. You can tell them it's a bad mm-hmm. idea. You can explain why. And then you can come up with, okay, well, this is a thing we could do instead. Would this work? You know, mm-hmm. get creative with the problem solving rather than clients. Defending or <laughs> so the other thing to do is always on every client call, no matter how great you think it's going, always be prepared that this will happen, <laughs> right? Just know that this could very well happen, that you could get, quote, attacked by the client out of nowhere. Sideswiped, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, well, I think we covered not, that. Yeah. When is our guest due to join? She's actually joining right now, so I will let her in. Good, let's do it. Our guest today is Lee Carraher. Lee is the CEO of Double Forte, a national independent PR communications agency. She is an acclaimed communication strategist, best known for her practical solutions to big problems. She's here to discuss closing the quote, say gap. She'll explain what that means. Old school PR challenges and how we have evolved or in some cases devolved through the years. So. Welcome, Lee. We're so happy to have you. I'm so happy to be with you, ladies. Thanks for having me. Your top is fabulous. Well, thank you. (laughs) Um, Should I confess that I have a series of tops that I change out depending on what I'm doing? And then the bottom, no one ever sees. Right. I hear that. I'm wearing like a t-shirt, like I'm Nicolas Cage in Moonstruck or something. So tell us about the genesis of your company. Before I started Double Forte, I was in the Weber Shanwick family, and I started two companies for them, both in San Francisco. One, Weber Shanwick San Francisco, which was the consumer technology practice. And then they asked me to start a company called Red Whistle, which was an integrated communications firm that had, we had like I don't know, eight or nine offices. Um, it was very clear to me that I should not work for that company, and I left. It's a long story. I was looking for the job and I was between two jobs. The one I'd had before, VP of comps. When my mother got diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, she lived in Wisconsin. I lived in California. Mm-hmm. So even though I'd said, I'm never doing this PR thing again. I started my own agency <laughs> out of need. Started and that was 19 agency. years ago. So here we are. So I want to know, I'm full of questions. Sorry, Laura. Can you share more about why you realized you can't work for that company anymore? You know, (laughs) I wasn't that happy at Weber Shanwick anyway. You know, Larry Weber had left. I built a brand in three years to $25 million, you know, with just myself and my people. And I didn't get any help from corporate 
very proud of that. And of course the brand is going to go away in the annealment. And then when I really assessed everything, they were so generous to me. I did take a job and then 9-11 made me realize that I really did not want to travel 150,000 miles a year. So I decided at that moment that I wasn't gonna. So I exercised my contract. I was there six more weeks, tied it up in a bow for people. And that was that. What an interesting ride. Well, Lee, I'm super curious also, have you been hearing people basically saying that PR doesn't exist anymore and that it's a dying thing and they can't like believe that you still do traditional PR? The definition of public relations is relating with the public. (laughs) And the traditional function of PR when I started in my career is to talk to intermediaries of the public, right? Between you and the client, whoever that is. So I have heard, I mean, people still want, everybody wants the cover of New York Times. There's nobody on the planet who doesn't want a good story in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. And I actually didn't call ourselves a PR firm when I started because I hated PR people. I mean, in 2002, I was in San Francisco, dot-com boom, a lot of hair tossers. Oh, sure, I'll get you that exclusive, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, ugh. I, so I didn't call us a PR firm because I was like, I don't want any PR people. And I actually started calling ourselves a PR firm after the first big downturn I've been through at this company. So in 2008, when everything changed, right, things were already changing. So I started my company before Twitter. Twitter comes along, things are about to change. And the function, our function has stayed the same. How do you get to people? But the way of doing that has changed, right? So at 2008, so I was like, you know what? We are actually moving up the food chain. So I'll call ourselves a PR firm. And now today, the public relations part of it, I have an easier way of explaining to clients how the work we do with intermediaries actually impacts the public than I ever did before. (laughs) Then people don't understand earned media. So everybody still wants the same result, the earned media hit. How you get it today is very different than how you got it even last year at this time. People do ask me that, April, like, you still do media relations? I'm like, yes, we do. And it's actually much more effective today because we're actually doing all of it, right, from the beginning to the end. So I think the actual definition today of PR, which is public relations, is more, more interesting than it was when I started my career, number one. And it's also so much more valuable. You can see the good PR people are moving up the food chain all over the map in the marketing food chain. It's so funny. I just had some junior people that I work with on the Slack video today. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to them about picking up the phone. I wanted them each to pick one person from their media lists. Yeah. We were going out to Canadian reporters uh-huh. and they had emailed all these different reporters and we're not getting them a lot of feedback. I said, uh-huh. all right, go through your list and pick just one person who you think would be the best person for this client. And we're going to call them on the phone. And I said, but what we're going to do is you're going to pick them and then you're each going to write a little script and we're going to share them. And we're uh-huh. going to hone down the script. And think about it. When you pick up the phone, it's like, be the one telemarketer who actually like has success with the random person. Right, right, the phone. Right. And I said, you understand that when I started doing this, you faxed a press release to 40 people and you called every single one of them and said, did you get my fax? Did you get my fax? Did you get my fax? Oh my God. I was just telling and they you. they were like, staff, what? When I first started... We had like eight fax machines in the company at the time, right? If there was a press release, we'd all divvy them all up and there'd be a time. And some of our clients were publicly traded, so we had to do it at a certain time, right? Mm-hmm. And you couldn't pre-program them then. You had to like put them in individually. Right. And then like you'd get the error report and you see which you ones didn't go through. You, you have to get it. You start you again. Exactly. This is number right. Oh my gosh, Because eight other people. And then if a story came out, you had to run down to the news you know, stand or the news, you know, they had like the bodegas and get the paper, the magazine, and then cut it out. And only one. You had to get five copies of everything. To the client, to you, to the per- and whatever. And then we kept and then- everything in the folder. So then you had to paste it up and, oh yep. my God. The good and old they, they were just like, what? I was like, so I don't want to hear. Like you have it so, you could just email it to somebody and people would be like, no thanks. And you're like, okay, good. 
It's a great exercise, though, right? I know. It's horrible to call, like, you know, people. That's why I said, I go, look, they're going to be jerks. You're going to get rejected nine times out of 10. They're going to be like, why? Don't call me. I mean, these things will happen. Yeah. That's why you got to come out of the gate swinging. Like, hi, my name is Laura. I represent a company that's in your backyard that's really interesting that I think you'd be interested in. Yeah. Oh, why? Because um, they're, you know, a, yeah. an innovative tech company. You and know, they if you are, practice that, that's actually, you know, I'm writing this down. Laura. I told them. This is I a said, good training. Because if you practice that, your writing will get better too. Your written pitch yes, will Yes, you'll better. get very concise. Yeah. And I said that, I go, I would make you guys practice it in front of each other, but we don't have enough time. I'm going to do it later though, but you better practice it before you pick up the phone. Because it's not easy. You only get one shot. I like it. I'm going to do that too. I'm going to copy this. I have no original thoughts, Laura and April. I just copy the good ones. So that's a good one. I'm I copying love it. it. <laughs> I'm, so I'm still trying to figure out how in the world he built that Weber Shanwick from eight people when you started to the biggest firm in the world. How did he do that? Well, you know, they got acquired time. by Shanwick. Right. And he outmaneuvered the British side. How did he do that? The multiple in technology PR versus the multiple in consumer PR is so much higher, so much higher. So, and particularly around at the thing about the timing of that was when all the IPOs, all the valuations of the technology firms. So there is no way that anybody on the other side of the pond was going to be able to compete with, at that time, the largest technology firm who had built it from scratch. But by the time I left, we had taken, I don't know, 20 companies public you know, AOL, loaded. I mean, all the firsts. So there's no way that they were going to let a consumer-laden firm or a corpcom firm lead that effort for the future. And there's some very good people there. The, the system of a publicly traded PR firm is ludicrous. There is no multiple in time and there's no way to win. Right. You can't now, create more time. There's, there's only a multiple in everything, every other discipline. There's a multiple. Right. There's no multiple in what we do. We get blamed for everything that goes wrong. We never get the credit for anything that goes right. right. All just, the blame and ridiculous. none of the glory. Yeah. And actually, some of the agencies are now, you know, they used to count revenue of fee income. And now public contributed companies are counting all revenue as income. And most clients today are not agreeing to a 20% markup. Those big clients that yeah, no are, go into negotiation on fees, no one's paying 20% markup anymore. So the income that comes in and goes out again, you know, it's just, that's it's a pass through, right? It's a pass through. And maybe there's 2% by the time it all comes through. Right. So, but that's counting as income. So those are the kinds of things of publicly traded companies that as a practice lead, you have no control over but they grate at your soul. So April, earlier, you're, you know, there's so much about being in a publicly traded service firm where time is what we sell that just grated on my soul. I just want, I didn't want to live that way. You know, so I have a very small company now and I get to say no to whoever I want to say no to. We have four rules. One, someone in the company has to be interested in the client because I think you do better work when you're interested. Two, you have to be a good fit. So Got to have the right experience, the right expertise, the right people, the right chemistry, because you can be a great client and a great agency and suck together, right? Three, you have to pay us. We like to eat. And four, no assholes. <laughs> so those are my rules. And that those rules have not, our model has changed. Our services have changed. The kind of clients we serve has changed. But those rules have not changed in 19 years. And I sleep pretty well every single night. I love it. I love it. How have your services changed? Are you guys doing influencer relations? Are you venturing into podcasts? Like, what are you, what are you doing? That yeah. Um... So, well, first, you know, we started without any social media because it didn't exist. Right. Of course. <laughs> I started the company, and we didn't do very much crisis work. We have a lot of high expertise in crisis, but you know, crisis doesn't happen around Monday at ten, right? Crisis <laughs> happens around Friday, around five fifteen. So we just didn't even put crisis on our list of services because I didn't want to get calls at 5.15. Like, can you work on weekend? So we do crisis now because if you're in the food business in a connected world, you have to be, it's not a choice. Like, you know, when something is found in a, a wrapper, right? right? That happens, that, again, not at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Monday. It happens around Sunday, around 10 a.m. So 
Mm-hmm. You have to be in the crisis business. We've always done anything that would cross an internal PR director or VP comms job. So having left Sega when I was VP of comms, I also had customer service and the website and events and PR and then IR and corporate comm. So everything crossed my desk or my team's desk. There wasn't anything that happened in that company that didn't cross my desk somehow. So, and when they're all connected that way, it's actually when you can have the right message that causes the least harm and propagates the most good. So um, anything that internal person does, we've always done. And what is added to it is social media. What is added to it is customer service. What is added to it um, is crisis, but all that other stuff we do. Mm -hmm. Actually, the biggest problem I think we all find now in agencies is scope creep. It's harder to not have in our world today than it is on the marketing side. Scope creep in the market. No, you don't have money for that ad. No, we're not going to do another photo shoot. No, we're not going to buy that actor, right? On our side, it's like, can you do this little message? Can you do that little message? Oh, we have this request. Again, it's about, because it's going back to what you were saying before about publicly traded, it's more about time in PR mm-hmm. than product. It's also, you know, yeah. it's so interesting because mostly what we do is talk to people themselves or text them or social, whatever, message them all. And it's negotiation with me asking you to carry my message without paying for it. That's basically what it is. It could be a reporter. It could be an analyst. It could be a Twitter guy. It could, it could be anything, right? And it's so messy, right? How do you measure that? Well, how do I measure when it didn't happen, right? We only want to pay you for the things that happened. Well, let me find you another firm. I mean, because they don't understand what we're doing, <laughs> right? They don't understand that yeah. the relationship and the negotiation is actually what we're doing for you. So it's very interesting that the thing that people, clients, you know, they know good PR when they see it. No, they don't. No, they don't. <laughs> oh, gosh. I right? Really- they don't. Oh yeah. No, they don't. They don't. And, they and don't. I had a client, we just signed the contract, but it took a couple of days to explain that we are not signing up for CPM and we are not signing up for advertising equivalency. No, it has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with what we do. Nothing. Zero. They don't know. A lot of people don't know, right? A lot of people don't know. I was just going to ask how you go about doing KPIs. KPIs. Then. How do depends you- Depends uh, on the company. Yeah. It also depends on the phase, right? So we have a client who hadn't done PR and literally didn't have anybody internally responding to any requests for 15 or 16 years. And so the first year, the KPI was how many people can we introduce to the client? And then the other KPI was how many people can we introduce to the company and how would we prove that? That was the measurement. It was strictly that. Because they hadn't done anything. We didn't even know what the baseline was, right? And then since then, the KPI is different. So we try to set out before we even start, what are we trying to get done? What do we think can it get achieved in the, in the short term? And then what's the long tail? And then we start that. So it really depends on the firm. Sometimes it's, you know, how much web traffic can we drive? Okay, we can do links, but I'm not doing CPM. And I won't do conversion because my job is not to convert. My job is to get people to a destination. We're really good at getting people to a destination. I'll sign up for that. Super smart. Sorry, Laura, what were you going to ask? Just the not understanding how, you know, PR actually functions. A client who, it was part of a bigger story with other companies involved, Mm -hmm. waited until after the release came out to tell me to help them with PR. And then when it wasn't working, they were like, well, that's so strange. When I did this five years ago, it worked. And I said, well, yeah, it didn't (laughs) because I was like, that's why I kept telling you, you have to do this ahead of time as maybe as an exclusive or something, not four days after the news is already out. And the company got mentioned in like six, seven or eight articles because it was part of a release, but it wasn't. Right, right, from right. That company's point well, of view. So April, you're talking about KPIs. We actually have a new KPI, right? So with all these freelancers and then everyone getting forced home. So we used to send wine, you know, alcohol, milk product. I mean, just stuff all the time, all the time. You know, we drop ship a hundred boxes. 
And last year, everyone got forced home and people are in small apartments. They don't have space to take everything. Like pretty much overnight, people are like, nope, we can't accept any boxes. So now we have a new KPI for that, getting people to agree to accept a mailing from us. Getting food into people's mouths to try things is tantamount. We have to do that to make our work happen. You know, depending on what time you're in, in the world, you know, your KPIs are going to be all over the map. So to your point, Laura, see, I'm going to tie it all together about timing. You know, if you have a date when you're dropping something or when something's going to be available in a store or, you know, you're competing or you're going to a show, like even if it's virtual, Mm-hmm. You have to now build a whole other month ahead of time mm-hmm. into your process so that you can get it to try to be on the same right. day. Because a lot of people who do wine or who talk about food or they won't write about it until they've tasted it. Okay, so everything's going to move back, right? And then the other thing is, you know, who does a press release today without thinking about all the different pieces? Where's the blog? Where's the LinkedIn cross? Let me see your content plan for the next three weeks on LinkedIn, Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, Instagram, right. and Twitter. You know, where's your video? Like, let me see all your stuff. I mean, we rely on press releases more today than we did three years ago yeah. for SEO and for, for links because right. it works, right? We know that it works. But in terms of just relying on a press release to get your news out, I mean, that's not PR. PR is getting the public to know what the hell you're doing. So where's the public? They're not just on a press release site. <laughs> so it's changed so much, April, to your earlier question. It's still the same function. Our function has not changed. Our function is still how do you connect a company or a client with the public that it matters to them to make their business happen? That function has not changed. The things that you do to do it and the the strategy you need around it in terms of timing and message and effort and making, you know, what boxes you check has totally changed. Ultimately though, if you don't have a good story and you don't have a good product, there's so many options. doesn't matter. You've got to tell a good story to get people to even bother with your pitch. Right. And then you have to do all these other hurdles to get it onto the page for physical or, or virtual you know, because it's a freelancer pitching an editor who has another deck of freelancers who's also pitching you know, the same story because we tell all of our freelancers in the category what's going on. And then it's, mm-hmm. do you have the links? And then, and then, and then. Yeah. So Lee, I wanted to ask you about the Say Gap and chat a little bit about your expertise in helping small businesses break through the noise. So let me, I'll, let me address both those. So close the Say Gap is a program that we built at PR Council for 2020. That was when I was on the board that year, last year. And basically the stats are that 70% of experts noted in any media, any category, print, online, television, radio, are men. And 90% of the people on the front page, so in the top 10 minutes of a newscast, the front page of a newspaper, the the top page of a website, are men. So we have been battling away, well, in the PR world, we've been battling away the fact that 70% of people in PR agencies are women, but 90% of people who are in agency management, particularly in the big firms, are men. And then the same is true in business where we, the biggest gap we've been talking about is the pay gap, right? How come women aren't getting paid more? Well, look at all the people who are talking about experts. I go in and I negotiate, look, I'm, I'm known as an expert. I can put that on my thing. I've been asked to speak, blah, blah, blah. I've written a book, all these things. So we all looked at our own numbers of how many men versus women we've trained in our careers. And we've trained far many more men regardless if the company is learned by a woman or not. So the program was for all the agencies who were members to get out there and start training women to put themselves forward by themselves or to demand it of the companies that they work for. Then COVID, so we did something else. But my agency, we're women-owned, we're 
90% women. This is like a passion point for me. So to close the sake up, we just picked them on our own. And between late 2020 and first quarter 2021, we had about 4,000 women go through our close the sake up training where we explained this and then showed them the things they need to do to put themselves in a position to give a comment and how you position yourselves. What's been so gratifying is we try to shove a lot into two hours. It's impossible to actually train people for media training in two hours, but it was first, you know, what's your photo? Because half these photos are terrible. And then I would have my, you know, how you write your bio, right? How we write bios for people. Well, you need to explain who you are and why you matter and in an exciting way. So how do you write a bio? How do you fix your LinkedIn page? How do you engage with other people? How do I get in that, in that magazine? Well, which magazine do you want to be in? Okay. What do you have to say? Okay. Who's your favorite writer? This one. Have you ever talked to them? No. Why don't you? Right? Because <laughs> what we do, you know, they're experts in their field, but they don't feel like it, right? It's imposter syndrome. We're, you know, we just have it everywhere. Meanwhile, men who are, and I don't mean this as disparaging to men who are experts in their field. This is not my point. But in general, right, we know this about women. Women will not apply for a job unless they can tick everything off on the here, must have, must have, must have, must have, must have list. It's known. This is a known fact. Mm-hmm. And men are like, they can tick off three, like, yeah, I can do that job. So women don't even put themselves into the realm of asking for the job. They've taken themselves out of competition before it's even started. The same thing is true for experts, right? They're like, oh, no one's going to want my opinion. And men are like, I got something to say. Close the stay gap is one to like just put that in front of people and then give them the tools that so they can go do it themselves. Mm-hmm. But that's the the genesis of that was if we can't, you know, in the world, we're not going to close the pay gap until we close the say gap on influence because agendas are made on what's in the media. That's where agendas are made for your business, for your industry. And if more women don't have something to say about the agenda of their industry, we're all screwed. So trying to get the right tools into people. And I have to say in the last six months, we've had so many emails. Oh, I got this. I was in this story. I got the speaking gig. So it works, right? It's working, but it's, and they're like, oh, I had no idea. It's so much work to get this done. I'm like, yeah, it's work. That's why you want to like make it narrow, make a list of 10 people you want to know, make it the list of five publications you want to know. So that was that. And the other one was, uh, and that's basically the second thing. Like how does a small business break through? Narrow your scope. What is your world? Define your world, right? So if it's a small business, depending on what kind of business it is, right? Who's your scope? Small, small, small. Who are the 10 people that matter? 10 people that matter to make your business successful. 20 people, 30 people, 40 people. Don't go past 40 people. Who are those 10 people? What do you need to do and get in front of them? You probably, what the most important you probably need is the email. And it's fine to have 10 people on your email newsletter list if that's the only people who matter to you. So, and then regularly talking to them, regularly publishing, and then whatever that email newsletter is shows up in your LinkedIn page, shows on your blog, and you're driving traffic. And then once you get those 10, add 10 more. Once you get those 10, add 10 more. Once you get those 10. So that, you have to do it with narrowing your scope, you know, Mm -hmm. narrow, 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 and then building it over time. That's how you make an impact. I have one final question for you that I thought of after you mentioned your four rules and you said rule number four is quote, no rules. Is that right? But how do you filter out the rules? Well, first is in the RFP because the RFPs that are told that are just totally unreasonable. We don't participate in. You right. Know? You mean something that's going to take like four days, 24 right. hours a day. Yeah. yeah. Don't participate. They have no concept of what we do. They don't honor what we do. They don't respect the thought process, the strategy that needs to go into what we do. And they don't know even what they're asking for at that point. Well, so first we try, right? We try to say, you know, this is really unreasonable or whatever. But if they don't get off their, what it is, if they miss meetings, if they uh, don't answer our questions on time, you know, and then sometimes, you know, clients become jerks over time maybe the person changed maybe they're always that way and they masked it and then we fire them we fired several clients not a lot 19 years not a lot but we good for you i mean i won't let my people be disrespected 
it will not happen. Or if it does happen, it only happen once and then we're out. Mm-hmm. And I make that very clear at the beginning. I don't say it that way, but um, I've had mm-hmm. that conversation. You will not raise your voice. Right. You will not threaten. You will not, you know, wait till Friday at 8 PM to return our email. You will not call us on Sunday for something that's not blood related. Right. You won't. And if you do, we're not going to respond. You know, this expectation of like 24 seven around the clock stuff. No, we need time to think. Our job is advisor. Our job is thinker, counselor. You don't just counsel. Yeah. You know, and then particularly for young people who don't know how to do that yet, they're like, so, oh, they're a client. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my God, you read the wrong thing. And then you have to unwind it all. Well, you right. know, Sally didn't know what she was talking about. Oh, yep. why are we charging $150 an hour for her? You know, right. right. And it's okay. I mean, it's part of the learning process, but I've had that a couple of times where like email has gone to, you know, the CEO of a client. I'm like, what did you just send to what the client? Yeah. We did that the first, in the first two weeks of on, on our onboarding. We have a whole section on how to respond to clients, when to respond to clients, mm-hmm. who not to respond to clients, mm-hmm. who you need to have other people look at your stuff. Right. Like no new person can respond without someone other eyes on it because exactly. you can get in trouble really quickly. Yeah. With not no intention. You're trying to be helpful, right? Because you just right. don't know. You don't know right. enough. So anyway. Yeah. Anyway, well, any other questions? Well, I- <laughs> <laughs> Any last thoughts or anything you want to plug? Well, the close the sake app, if people are interested in it, we do it for free. We don't charge for this the first time we do it for an organization. Very happy to do Whoa. it for groups of women. Um, we like to have at least 40 women in the Zoom um, to do it, but very happy to do it for people. And how do people um, get in touch it, with you? They should email me at lcaraher, C-A-R-A-H-E-R at double hyphen forte.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Lee Carraher, Instagram at Lee Carraher. I blog on these kind of topics at leecareher.com where my books are. So if you're interested in that. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been really fun. All right. All right. Bye, ladies. Thank Bye. you. Thanks for having me. Bye. That was fun. All right. Let's, let's move on to our horror story. I guess I'll read it. Here we go. I was on a team once where nepotism was really throwing off my groove. I was managing an account team for a very touchy client, obsessed with metrics, very controlling micromanager type CEO. It was a big budget account and I'd spent a few months getting into the swing of things to manage this client. It was tough, but I was starting to feel the heat turned down as the client began to trust me. And it was tough getting there. Enter the new AC at the firm also known as my boss's niece, a fresh college grad. Oh man. She was definitely ambitious and a go-getter, something I usually admire in a shiny new PR person. But a few weeks in, she started crossing boundaries. She'd answer a strategy email that was sent to the team, but meant for me. She'd chime in on calls with advice she was not equipped to give. It was getting awkward and I didn't want to panic in front of this client and send him off the rails. I eventually pulled her aside and explained that for client management purposes, until she has some more years under her belt, the strategy stuff is best answered by a more senior person. And that if she had an idea, she could share it internally to discuss. She seems cool with it. And she really did lay off for a while. Then a couple weeks passed and the client asked us for some strategy recommendations for an upcoming announcement. And this girl decided it was time to take the mic. (laughs) She started spouting off all of this advice that frankly made zero sense. And I decided it was going to have to end there. This was a Zoom call and I muted her. (laughs) Then I chimed in and tried to politely but assertively disagree and answer the question with more reasonable recommendations. She quit not too long after that, and my boss never said anything to me, but I could tell the client felt weird and the rest of the call was so awkward. Was there anything else I could have done to avoid a mild showdown in front of the client? I didn't wanna go 
to my boss, our relationship was cold and this was his niece, but she was going rogue. Ah. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I thought it sounds like they handled it pretty well. Yeah. I mean, all's yeah, well that I mean, ends I think, well. I think the only other thing maybe is instead of just muting her, maybe jumping in and saying, hey, that's a great thought, you know, just to build on what she's saying, even if you're not and you're taking it in a totally different totally, direction, right. just to make it look like you're one big team. Right. And then just sort of talk over her, but do it in a really sort of politefully pushy and. Right. I would like to think that I would be secretively sarcastic. Like say, let's say her name was Sarah. And she's giving some crazy ideas that make zero sense and to mute her and chime in and say, Sarah is known for her very unique and interesting insights, something like that. And then say, and to yeah, build on her genius, I would never say it, but that's what I'd want to do. Yeah, I don't think that would show the same team spirit, but it would be right. much funnier. So mine's the funny way, yours is the actual. <laughs> that's funny. I just find it interesting. Most of the time I find that junior people on accounts, I wish they would say something more. Like I'll be on a call and I'm like, oh my God, as a senior person, they think that you know every single thing and remember every single thing of, you know, top to bottom and you don't. Yeah. And it's really kind of like their job <laughs> to know a lot of those details. I've been on calls and been like, so Stu, like, why don't you talk about that? And they're like, what? And I'm like, oh my God, I don't even remember. You know what I mean? And so I tr I want them to talk more usually. So it's just funny that this niece was like a chatterbox about something she knew nothing about or That's little funny. about. I think they handled it fine. And no, I don't think there's really anything else than what we just said. No, and I don't think you can go to the boss. I mean, I think you could ask moving forward if she's too junior and you have a bunch of people on the call and she's an AC. Mm -hmm. Hey, seems like we're showing up to these client meetings with a big army and it seems like too a waste of people. budgets, too many people. And we need everyone to have something mm -hmm. of value to contribute. Is it okay with you if we just give her the recordings of the calls? I mean, I might do that. Right. Because then well, it's, you're not true. saying anything terrible, but you're like, no, I'm trying to save the hours see, like, for the client. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good idea too. All right. So that's what I would do. Okay. Shall we move on? Let's keep it moving. Keep it moving. PR News of the Week. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so our PR News of the Week is a tweet from a staff writer at Vice, Anna Merlin. And she said, I actually think a good business model would be to not lay off rounds of highly skilled and sought after journalists every six months. No media company has ever tried it. Could yours be the first? <laughs> Which led to a very interesting thread. She's basically saying that Vice, like Refinery29, and a number of publications just laid off reporters. And this seems to be happening a lot among these sort of media, I'm going to call them startup companies. Some of them didn't just start last year, but they're certainly not the New York Times. So media startup companies. And they come in and they invest all this time and money and they hire known journalists in some regards or super you know, talented writers. And then six, eight, 10 months later, they lay a ton of them off and they say it's because they don't have enough money. Mm -hmm. And so she's sarcastically disagreeing with this. <laughs> so her point is, maybe you guys would be more successful if you weren't laying off your staff all the time. And so if somebody said, well, isn't the problem that publications aren't profitable and the business model of old print media just doesn't work anymore? And somebody named Oliver Garden responded and said, publications are absolutely profitable when they're not required to pay their billionaire investors first and their actual workers last. <laughs> Defector X Deadspin writers acquired 30,000 subscribers in the first month, earning about $2 million in revenue. And then other people go on to talk about how they do follow their favorite writers and talented reporters from publication to publication. 
which is how these new startups are, they go to these known writers first because they know that's how they're going to draw the eyeballs against which they're going to be able to sell advertising or other products, et cetera, or maybe even, you know, subscriptions. And then they pull the rug out on the very people that they brought in to build the business up to begin with after not a long time. It's similar to my position on health insurance companies should not be allowed to be publicly traded because the company is more concerned with their shareholders than they are with giving their consumers, their clients who are in need of healthcare, good service. Mm-hmm. It's similar in that very quickly, the most important thing are if it's a publicly traded company, the shareholders, or if it's been, you know, mostly it's like seed investors and a round investors, you know, getting the return on their investment in a ridiculous short amount of time. And so now your product is suffering. And once again, reporters are being undervalued, laid off, lured away. And this is why a lot of them, as we've also talked about, go to do things like Substack. Right. I mean, it's a rotten thing to do to people because it's their entire livelihood. Mm-hmm. And you've lured them away, presumably from a bigger publication, probably with more money. And then you can't sustain that salary. So they're left jobless in a market that is brutal. Yeah. It's not like journalists have the options they used to. And so what people are saying is they actually do have the money, but they're not willing to spend it on the writers. The writers quickly become the lowest priority. Which makes no sense because that's the entire product. Yeah. You're going to save a lot of money, but how fast is the whole thing going to implode on itself? To that point, I still feel like the biggest issue right now is that the media needs to provide something of intrinsic value that people will pay for with the objectivity that people rely on to get their news Mm -hmm. instead of going for the clickbait thing. I mean, maybe this is just Pollyannish because people in reality don't want real information. They'd rather have low-hanging fruit and something that titillates them and something Mm -hmm. that sensationally that they can get mad about and continue on their, you know, I think they've, their thought train of otherhood, right? Of like, I think that they've gotten hate, tricked. Some, I think they've gotten tricked yeah. into thinking that way, largely by a lot of social media, by the Facebooks of the world. There's been a lot of, when I say tricking, sort of honing after how long has Facebook been really around 13, 14 years that you've been really using it, 15 years. I think that, you know, it started as like, look, here's my profile and pictures of my friend and my cat. And you know, you post up and you visit. That was cool. And it's become such a psychological monster that over those years, I don't think people understand that they've been manipulated into becoming the factions that we've all become. This segmentation continued with social media, but, but it also became intrinsic to your life, right? At least when you watch TV in the old days, you then turned it off and went to work or turned it off and went to out with your friends or whatever. Now you're bringing it along with you wherever you go and you're using it to film what you're doing and we're in like, writing a message about where, you know. Maybe again, this is Pollyannish, but I feel like people are starting to get tired of yeah. it and start to say, wait a second, do I really hate anybody who's not like me right and every single way you know to right. all of these boxes that's really the person I want to be you know I think there are a lot of people that are right that so, are starting to wonder about which I think could then lead to this revolution in the media where mm-hmm. because the sub stacks I feel like are kind of the engine yeah in a way I feel like they're leading the way and they're showing us what's possible if journalists can get an audience and show their value through what they're providing, then they can get paid directly. And I think people are willing to pay subscriptions for information that they need, especially if they're in a place where a lot of people are that I've talked to, where it feels like it's so much work to do your own reporting. Mm -hmm. Talk to a lot of people who tell me, I listen to everything on the left and everything on the right because I have to draw my own conclusions because nobody else is objective. So my, the only way for me to get valid information about what's going on in the world is to listen to Everything. Steve Bannon and CNN. 
and then draw my own conclusions in between because yeah but that's no... partially what you're saying is that's like kind of crazy right i mean how it's much insane. time no that's how much, so what i'm you know, saying is like effort if, if outlets come back to the middle people would pay for that it's polarized to the point where it's like there's this agenda and there's this agenda mm-hmm. and, the only and never the twain shall meet and the only way for me as an individual to get something that's not being politicized mm-hmm. by one group or the other is to listen to both which is so right. time consuming right and so exhausting right so, and to bring- so upsetting because there's like right. hysteria 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 everywhere you go hysteria right. nobody wants I mean, everybody- we just want facts. Like, tell me what's going on in the world. Right. I think to bring it back to what you were saying that took us down this trail is that people need to be, and maybe they are, be brought back into rational thought. And if yes. they are provided real news, rational thought, non-editorialized content increasingly, then hopefully not everybody but a working majority, even if it's 51%, will realize pay for that. Right, pay for it and realize that it's higher quality and it makes them happier people and smarter people and better informed human beings that can get along with people who are in exactly like they are. And right. that you can have some opinions that seem to be conflicting, like me and my no car stance. <laughs> I mean, it- well, I wonder you know, how there's such a shortage of willing workers right now in so many yes. different industries. I think largely because maybe because of unemployment, we'll see. But I also think because people were like, you know what, that job sucked and I will never do it. The only reason I did it is because I felt I had to. And now I haven't been doing it for a year and a half. And guess what? I don't have to. I'm still alive and I'm eating and, you know, paying most of my bills or whatever. I'm wondering if the media industry continues to go down the path that it goes, it's going to be a similar thing where they're going to find themselves SOL and there aren't going to be enough people willing to work for these types of companies. And so they will have created their own problem. On the other side, there are also huge problems that we've seen in the media of people at very senior levels abusing their position, so to speak. Wait, did you see the article in the New York Post about that GMA producer who just got fired from like, what was it? Assaulting women or something crazy? Yeah, so I know that guy. Wait, what? (laughs) You do not. Stop. I do. I know him. I know him. Wait, was he like that when you knew it or you knew him? Well, I knew him a long, long time ago, decades ago. He was a young, unmarried man. He is now a married man with children. And based on what I read, and they were very specific stories from two different women who are far younger than he, it sounds like he is not matured one iota since he also was that age. So I can believe it. He's clearly denying it as of course he has to, to save his family life and career, but These stories from these women, if you read the story in the New York Post, I mean, they're so specific about things that happened that kind of, you could see that happening. If you're a woman, you'd be like, yeah, I've been there. Except that he was these women's very senior boss. I mean, he worked directly with George Stephanopoulos and such. (laughs) When I knew him, he was a producer at Inside Edition. What? He's worked his way up the ranks. He's a super outgoing, funny guy, but I'm not that surprised. Oh, so unfortunate. How does that happen? Do you think they just feel like they want to still feel as young as they feel inside? Is that what's happening? (sighs) So what I do think now is I think I'm from a generation where you just put up with that and it's not that bad and blah, blah, blah. Right. However, I... I'm not going to turn these women down at all because they're probably right in that the foundation, the given, the like tenor of what it means to work in a workplace needed to change a long time ago. And we're finally getting around to it. And it had to be so blatant and a little bit over the top, maybe to some people's opinions in order for something to really change. 
So the whole Me Too movement and what's been going on with like these, I I think this stuff has to to happen in order for any real incremental beneficial change to be made. Well, I think what people like we are doing with the say gap and trying to close that makes a lot of sense too. Because I think you kind of have to tunnel in both directions. You have to say, yes, this isn't right. But you also have to kind of rebrand yourself Mm -hmm. as, especially as a woman, if you show up to work with a super low cut top, you're not asserting yourself as a serious professional, mm-hmm. you know, that needs to be dealt with as a man, right? There has been a long history of using your sexuality to, to get ahead. If you want to get ahead for your smarts and your credibility and your output, then you have to do that. You can't play both ways. You, I think there's people a would disagree. People would a- disagree with you, right? I'm sure. I'm sure. But I think the whole culture has been built around this game that men and women right. play. Right. I think both genders need to um, adjust. Adjust. Yeah. They need to recalibrate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can still look attractive. You can wear right. makeup. You can, I mean, but I, maybe don't show cleavage. Right. The difference is men typically still have the power in business. And maybe, and some people would yell at me for saying this physically, you know, they can physically overpower you 99 out of 100 times. So what they do is very much more consequential. Absolutely. So it's not an even playing field from the get-go. Not to say that it doesn't, manipulation and even, you know, like sexual harassment from women to men happens too, but because of the things I just said, the balance of power and like physical prowess, it's not an even playing field to begin with. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. The bulk of the responsibility lies in the hands of the men, of course. I think my point is just that we do ourselves a favor and also present as, as a serious professional. Right. And not like, Hey, if you do this for me, I'll flirt with right. you all and the time. I mean, I, I'm going to be honest. This is coming from somebody that used to do that and then got that response. It's like, I'm not saying it went away once I stopped using flirtation and charm to get what I wanted and where I wanted to go, but it did cut it down by at least 90%. Wow. So right. If you're friendly with some men, they're still going to take it the wrong way. Right. You know, even I if agree. you're giving them zero signs, that can Right, because they're like, oh, like the, somebody who looks like April would never talk to me, so I'm going to milk this She's for all talk- it's worth. <laughs> so I used to be a crime reporter, and I was trying to use all of my young flirtatious wiles. charms and wiles to get stories out of the, you know, police. men at the police station. And then I ended up harassed by five of them. <laughs> and I had to go ask my supervisor to remove me and tell the ch- station chief that I had been harassed by five different men. Police officers, yeah. detectives, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. All of the above. Here's a really funny detail. I ended up starting to go to work like Annie Hall to try to cut down on it. So I was wearing a tie to work every day <laughs> and it made it worse. It made it, it so did? much worse. Oh yeah. It's, I don't know It's what almost happened. like, it, maybe it was like some sexy librarian fantasy kind of thing, you know? But the problem was I was still interacting. So even though I way. had cut down on, yeah, I was still just being what I thought was the, you know, effusive, bubbly, sunshiny. Right using my eyes and my face you know all of those things that you are taught to do when you're you know a girl you weren't somehow I don't know I was so bad but then it was so this is they were reading the room right this is what I'll say my room was all wrong right you were you had like pink fur and mirrors on the ceiling right and I had like a cardboard box with like a rat trap in the corner (laughs) I taught myself a lot by doing the wrong thing Right, but at least you got to the right thing, right? Work, I'm still working on it. These yeah. mostly men that we're talking about don't seem they they don't seem to have ever gotten to the right thing. There's not the self reflection, right. right? There's not the self. And is it? And, and it's because it's. Thing. I think it's because they're fossils. I have though. I have though seen men in the media industry who I previously knew to be. More like him, and then self-correct and stop doing it. 
because they matured. They still yeah. have to have decided to have self-reflection. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. So there still has to be that kernel of, yeah, of wanting to grow as a person. But I have, So I have boys will be boys. You know, this is the way it works in the world. Dudes who keep doing that are fossils. And it's a generation that is O-V-E-R. They better start self-reflecting today because they are going to lose. Right. They're not going to like what's reflected back to them otherwise. From no. Internal. Nobody's putting up with it anymore. Right. But going back to what we were talking about here, where poor reporters are getting laid off every six months and companies are refusing to support them. I mean, we went on, you know, two different branches of sort of the same topic, but I'm very interested to see how that goes too. I mean, you know, a lot of journalists go into PR, right? Maybe they'll all defect. Well, then we're gonna- Maybe they'll become authors, write books. Way, I don't way know. too many publicists for the number of reporters. I know when there's eight reporters and 18 million PR people. I talked to somebody this morning who said that, you know, the number of reporters has gone down by 50%. So the number of PR people has got to go down 50% too. Yeah, instead it's increased 40% probably. Well, that's why we have to do other things besides just media relations. Yep, to Lee's point. Yep. All right, well, that was an interesting an interesting adventure i'm sitting like this so people can see my cat i know i know you are it's pretty cute what is she doing down there is she the refrigerator is blows like a little bit of hot air out and because it's only 90 degrees she <laughs> isn't warm enough that is so cute getting her little fur body warm She's so a little fur burrito have you ever fur, seen a fur, fur burrito? burrito okay so Thank you for tuning in for the PR Wine Down podcast. And thank you to Lee for joining us for today's interview. Remember to submit your own agency stories and questions and to share our show with your friends and colleagues. If you subscribe and leave us a rating, it will also help us reach new listeners like you. And if you have an anonymous PR horror story of your own, send it our way at the contact email below the episode notes. Can't wait to wind down with you again next time. Taco cat. You know taco. what taco, taco cat spelled backwards is? Taco mm. cat. <laughs> How about that? Why didn't I know that? I feel like I, you're laughing like everyone knows that. <laughs> now I'm a moron. <laughs> <laughs>